How you doing? I'm Doug Devaney, and you're listening to the Plastic Podcasts, Tales of the Irish Diaspora. Now, we here at Plastic Towers like to consider ourselves the fairly active sort. So much so, it's a one-man operation calling himself we. But we've barely got the mattress off our backs compared to today's guest, Lorraine Marr. Raised in Tipperary and moving to London when she was just a teenager, she describes herself as a consultant, educator, trainer, project manager and creative. She's a director of Project 507, education manager of Clean Break Theatre and the founder of I Am Irish, which started as a photography exhibition in 2016 and has since gone on to become an international organisation offering support and training over perceptions of Irishness, colour and identity heritage. I have no idea how much time we've got with her, so let's start by asking... How are you doing? I'm fantastic. Thank you. Really happy to be here with you this morning. But before we go any further, like people talk about me coming from Tipperary. I'm from Carrick and Shaw. It is in County Tipperary, but I love my town and I want to plug it in any way that I can. For people who don't know Carrick, what's it like? It's very community. It actually feels like there's about 10,000 people living in Carrick. Growing up as a child, I felt like I knew everybody. Like, you know, you know all the families that there are within the town. I think, you know, this it's changed over the years. There is actually a direct provision centre in Carrick and Shaw, and I think that there's a lot of people that don't know that. I know certainly lots of people close to me had no idea what that was, um, but it's, it's as a town, is a town that comes together to support each other as much as they can. Um, I would say that it's a town that could really do with some national support in terms of employment, and, um, you know, I think it really is a town that, that it given, given something will make something um, from whatever it's given. There's real camaraderie in the town. Right. And how much has it changed over the past X number of years? I mean, since you moved to London? I mean, I'll be honest with you. I think our town, apart from the kind of, you know, it's, it's um, expanded as most places have to accommodate, you know, or like younger families and whatever, but the town itself, I don't know that it's really changed that much. I think one of the biggest changes has been our, our main street um, because the fact that there's, you know, these massive supermarkets that um, can afford to, to sell cheaper groceries and things, I think has had an impact. And, you know, when we see, I don't want to mention some of the high street names, but where you can buy cheap clothing and everything else. Like I remember as a child, going up the town and you you know there was the shoe shop there was the clothes shop you'd know where to go for your socks the tire shop the butchers now some of those some of those family businesses still exist in the town but i think that there'll be many small towns in ireland that will be suffering from the same the same kind of thing i'm a real i'm a real supporter of kind of local economy and really um trying to give to um the local community i i like to shop small wherever i can and to to shop from independent independent traders i'd much prefer to give my money there when you were growing up there and i know that in your um in your interview with the irish times you described yourself as feeling like the only black person in ireland did you feel very much like uh, out of kilter or, or within the community at the same time there is a thing and i think that a lot of small towns will understand this is that you are different but you're part of the town even in your difference so like we can say what we like about you but we won't let anybody else say so growing up in my younger, younger years, and I can remember um, things that were said without people, without me even understanding it or knowing. Like I'm, I'm, um, my mother is Irish, my father is Nigerian. Um, I didn't know that until 
quite recently that he was Nigerian. I've always known that he, he came from Africa. You know, growing up in Ireland, we knew Africa as a country and not a continent or 54 countries. So I knew that I knew that I was half African, uh, but I was Irish, but, uh, but that my father was from Africa. Um, actually, there was there was moments where my grandmother used to tell me that my father was a Spanish sailor for, you know, when people would say, oh, look at that little black baby. She'd say, she's not black. Her father was a Spanish sailor. And then I'd hear, you know, when I go home, I'd hear the kind of conversations about um, being being African. But of course, at that time, growing up in Ireland, all we really learned was is that people were starving in Africa. We didn't hear other kind of narratives. We heard about the trocro box and the saving of the little black babies. So. For me, when I was growing up, I guess that that's, you know, I'd, I think that there was moments of people feeling like I was a bit of a novelty because I had this different bouncy hair, you know, that people would want to touch or want to pet, like I was like something to be petted. Um, and I, in, in my much younger years, I remember kind of enjoying that, the kind of the feeling. I remember there was two American women that they used to, you know, in, in the town, they'd call them the Yanks. Um, and the Yanks would always, they'd love to see me and they'd give me like 10 bob, you know, they'd give like a 10 pence or they'd give me lollipops. And I remember getting that and feeling, I mean, years later, I realised actually, I won't even go into what I realised that they, that was going on in those kind of moments of them feeling like I was this little poor little black kid that, they, you know, that they needed to kind of look after. But um, as I kind of got into, so I didn't even realise what that meant for me till I was about 10. Um, I had an argument with my first cousin who, who was orphaned um, and, and lived with us, you know, grew up with us. And, and I remember calling him a name and, and I didn't really understand, I didn't understand what, what it was to be a bastard or, you know, because it was a word that was branded around a lot in them days. Um, and he told me for sure who I was and what it was. And, you know, I remember saying to me, you little black bastard. Um, and often now, you know, we talk about it and he's always saying to me, I'm really sorry. For, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. But that was the first moment of it really dawning on me that that's that's what it was. That's what made me different. And and then I remember feeling at that time embarrassed by by this same kind of narrative, because bearing in mind, the only narrative I had was that these were people that were starving. These were people that were uneducated not when I'm saying these even like this is who I am but at that time feeling almost like um you know these we didn't we had one channel on the telly at the time but the, the things that we saw um there was never this kind of positive energy so I learned at that time and also you know kids can also be quite cruel and and other children then started questioning why I look different, how I look different. And also in school at that time, you know, the, you, people would always talk about your mum and dad, your mum and dad, your mum and dad. And I had no idea who my dad was. Um, and so I was left in all those questions. And I remember asking my mother and I telling me it was none of my business. And in hindsight, I think that she didn't have enough information that she could give me and probably didn't even really know how to answer me and, you know, how to give me the information that I felt like I needed. And I often do think if, if I had had a better understanding of the other side of myself at that time, if I would have been better prepared for answering the bullies or, you know, when, when people like would, would call you names or say things and, 
And also, you know, Doug, there was this awful, uh, you know, as children, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. we'd have, you know, people would do, and I'd be saying it because that's what, um, that's what I grew up saying and doing or people saying, what can't I have that because I'm, and I'd be, and, and then there was a the moment of thinking, but hold on, I am, that is who I am. That's, you're talking about me. And, you know, even like, so we grew up on the river shore. We went, everyone went to swim. And even now you see the kids jumping off the old bridge into the water. And in the summertime, we'd go swimming. And, but as soon as I'd go in the water, my hair would just become massive. And, and then that became the point of like, oh, you better mind the fish get caught in that. And, you know, and, and all those kind of things that made me feel like I can't have that same experience. So I then would make up excuses as to why I couldn't. And as a result, you know, grew into adulthood, not knowing how to swim. And then you go into secondary school. And at the time, there was kind of two, two choices. Actually, there's still, there's three. There's the Christian Brothers School. There's, uh, I, I don't really want to mention the schools, just, you know, but there's, uh, I should, I guess, as I've, as I've mentioned, and there was three schools. There was Green Hill um, School Muir, which is the, the nuns, you know, where the nuns were, there was the tech and the Christian Brothers School. And, uh, you know, my, my grandmother at the time, very religious woman, there's no way she would have let me go to the tech. So I had to go to, to Green Hill. Um, and I remember, you know, going to secondary school. So at that point, all of the, the most of the kids in the town had grown up with me. They knew who I was. Um, and so everybody had the kind of nicknames that was attached to lots of kind of things. And so I was just that person. And then going to secondary school, there was other people that joined the school that had lived in the country. And for them, they definitely never seen anyone like me before. And I remember, Doug, you know, being really young and thinking, you, you know, as a teenage girl, you saw people would be talking about when they're going to get married and they're going to have this hairstyle and that hairstyle. And I remember thinking, I'm never, ever in my life going to get married because my hair is not going to fit in a veil. I mean, it was quite stupid. You know, I look back at it now. Um, but I remember thinking that, like, my, my hair is just not going to fit in a, in a veil. And so... At about 14, I had my first haircut, which actually was just that my, my hair was just shaved off. And I was so delighted to have a bald head. I was so happy to have this new hairstyle, um, you know, at that age and feeling like, yeah, my, my hair is just like everyone else's, even though it clearly wasn't. But the best thing that happened to me as a youth was musical youth past the duchy. Oh my God, that was the best thing to ever happen to me. When I saw them, I was like, yes, this, these are my, this is, this is who I am. Because at that time as well on the telly, we had fame and, you know, there was Leroy and fame that had the, the plaits in his hair. And they suddenly felt a bit cool that there was these people. But it then came to a place where that I then became a bit exotic. So it wasn't, you know, I went from one kind of experience to another of then being, yeah, a kind of the, this kind of skewed sense of reality in that what, what people's perceptions were of what I then looked like, you know, once you get into your kind of mid to older teenage years. Um, so there was always that kind of 
just not fitting, not fitting. And it's quite lonely, even though that you're amongst other people because nobody else really understood it. And it, there wasn't a place to talk about it. There wasn't a language for it. The, you know, there was definitely no place that I could bring it. And I remember even one time, one of the nuns telling me about how much shame I brought on my family because my mother's first cousin was ordained in our church um, the same year I was born. He became a priest. Um, he's a retired canon now. I didn't even know you could retire actually. But um, he, he, I mean, he never made me feel like that, but, but the nuns certainly did. That, you know, I was always just seen as the shame the shame and I think I held a lot of the shame that people probably tried to put on my mother um be, and, and even for my mother I was the public evidence of whatever you know whatever mistake it was that she was told that she had it must have been very hard for her when I look back rest her soul she's passed away now lost on 20 2012 um but she never she'd never talk about it she'd never talk about it You're listening to The Plastic Podcasts. We all come from somewhere else. Find us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. As founder of I Am Irish, Lorraine Marr's life is one of pushing against boundaries and finding ways to help others express themselves. In this section, we discuss how she got here from there. There being a small town Irish teenager just arrived in London in the early 1980s. I remember being mesmerised by people just seen so many different types of people. But the one thing that happened to me, Doug, I met, you know, I went, I can't say into a black community because there were individual people that, people that happened to live in a particular environment. But I was one time in my life, I was just me. Nobody questioned me. Nobody, you know, the only things that people said, it's like, oh, that's a, that's a weird accent. Cause I had a really strong Irish accent at that time. And, and I, you know, I feel a bit embarrassed to say it now, but I worked hard to get rid of that accent at that time because it didn't feel like something that, that um, really spoke for me because it felt like that wasn't, like I remember coming to England and going up to, you know, they had um, Biddy Mulligans and Kilburn and the Galtsy Hall and, you know, lots of other kind of places. And I remember going to those places and people looking at me like, what is she doing here? People actually saying, like, are you sure you're in the right place? Um, and they were the places that I were going for to get my sense of home in those in those places. But they weren't places that I was met with a welcome. Whereas when I went into, into like the Afro-Caribbean club, there was just a welcome. It was like a come in. Do you want something to eat? Do you want a drink? Um, there was that welcome that where I just felt like I found a place that I want to be and this is the place that I belong. And it took a long time for me to rebuild my love of my home. Although I've always, you know, I've always been, I'm Irish because it's the only identity I've, I've ever known is that of being Irish because, I, you know, there was the, the dad from Africa, but I knew, I knew my Irish ancestry back thousands of years. I, you know, I knew who they were. I knew um, the, whether those, those members of the family that accepted me or not, I knew who they were. And I knew that, that that's who I was as a person. But I spent many years not talking to any of my Irish family um, because I just felt like that 
yeah, I felt like that Ireland wasn't a place that was accepting of me. Is that why you left to London? To be honest with you, Doug, when I when I left, I don't. I think I thought that's why I was leaving. But it, the truth is, is that a friend of mine that was in school with got in trouble, and we just decided we we're going to run away. And I don't know that I really had any reason. And we 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 set off on the train. We got found in in Ross Lair, and um and. You know, my mother was like, "Why? What are you doing?" And I was like, "Cause I don't want to be here anymore. I want to leave." Um, and then I, and then I really started thinking. Actually, I really don't want to be here, and leaving is an option. And so I, you know, I remember threatening that I would do it again unless I was allowed to go. And so my mother arranged for me to come to London to stay with a cousin of hers. Um, so that's what happened. But to be honest, I stayed with them for about a month, and then I left. And um, yeah, I've been in London since. Did you do the whole um, sofa surfing thing? Yeah, sofa surfing. Like I remember I had these um, friends that used to come home on holidays from London and they had an auntie that lived in Hackney. I didn't even know that she existed actually. Um, I think she was a bit like me where like she wasn't really tight with the rest of the family. And she said, look, there's a couch there. You can, you can stay on the couch and she happened to live in an environment where there was lots of Irish and lots of Caribbean families actually at the time and I remember that was you know the first opportunities that I actually met people to talk to and actually one of the first people that I met is a Jamaican guy called Danny Smith who was just you know and he then started talking to me about the connection back in it you know through ancestry and his family and feeling like that there was Irish somewhere along the line and talking to me about the language and you know um and often talking to me about irish potatoes and i you know i just felt like at the time that there was that i met people individuals and communities that were just living harmoniously together and were really accepting and wanting to know and um feeling like that they wanted to see me elevated and not seeing me feeling like i was the person that needed to be hidden or not seen in that same kind of way so that became like a, you know a community of people that I really became part of. Um, what, what did you have a job at the time? Were you were, were you signing oh, was, on? What was the? I was really I was really young at the time. I think I did a, like a training course, um, and I remember working for a sickle cell society. Actually, I have no idea how I got that job when I look back to because we were going around schools and, and kind of talking about it. I mean, I became very knowledgeable about it and really interested in, in sickle cell. And because also kind of thinking that I wouldn't know if that was if, if that was an experience for me. So sickle cell is is um, a bleeding disorder that generally affects um, the Afro-Caribbean community. It can affect other people, but generally the Afro-Caribbean community. Um, and I remember thinking that this is something I really need to know about because I didn't know any of this kind of history. Um, and so, yeah, I worked with them for quite a while. And then, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I got pregnant quite young as well. I had my first son when I was 18. And um, I can't remember some of the, early, I was trying to think about what are the earlier jobs that I did at, at that time. But I know certainly in my younger years, um, like I got into working with the arts probably in my mid twenties after doing kind of numerous courses and things. But I remember certainly in those years feeling like I had been very creative. I'd had to kind of, you know, 
live out these, these wore lots of different masks while I was younger and pretending a lot of the time that I was okay when I really wasn't okay and having to fit and blend a lot of the time like a chameleon um, in order to just feel like I could just be someplace like I'd be quite happy in the back no, no one drawing any attention to me and just kind of cracking on with life I remember speaking to I was going to say I was speaking to a therapist once but not in a therapy session I remember them asking me if you know if they thought that I was attracted to drama because you know you know when people have dramatic life life situations and I was like whoa I'm not sure I'm not sure about that but I think that the thing about the arts that always so be, I think before after doing um, you know, getting involved in, in creative work. I worked in a community centre for quite um, a time. And what I think I realised quite early on is, is that I felt like a real empathy for particular situations that people found themselves in based on my, my own lived experience. And I realised that I what was really driving me was really being able to empower other people. And so I think in my early days within... Um, so we... You know, I currently work in a theatre company, um, but I worked in the creative industries. Like I worked at the Roundhouse in Camden for about 10 years um, as a community development manager there and um, managing their outreach programme. And I think that what really excites me about the arts full stop is all of the kind of transfer transferable skills that there are and giving people an ability to really be able to... Um, think about different scenarios for themselves, different choices, or just being able to explore in a way. I think that, it, you know, the arts is, is I, I think, I don't think that there's um, enough credit given to the impact that arts and culture has on us as a society of people. You know, even when we think throughout the pandemic, it's often, it's what's kept us going. And I often think as somebody who is Irish, it feels like it's really inherent in us because from early childhood that were great storytellers. There was always somebody telling a story, always someone singing in this, you know, the session. And, and people always appreciating what they heard, not necessarily, it, they didn't have to be really polished or what you would see in a recording, but people just appreciating and applauding. And I still, it's one of the things that I love when I go home, when we see, you know, you go to any bar, I don't even drink, but I love going to the pub to listen to the bands. There's always a band playing in, in the bars. There's always, you know, children are, it, it's, there's opportunities for children to, to get involved in music and, um, and the amateur dramatics in our town. I know it's kind of, it's outstanding as the years have gone by. Although I didn't feel like that was a place for me, I have to say, Doug, kind of growing up. And I still, like, I remember my mother coming to visit one time when I was working at the Roundhouse. And I remember her saying, like, what, this is, this is a job. This is a job. You get your, I'm like, yes, people earn a living out of, you know, working, working in the arts. Of course it is. But the thing that I just, I, what I love about it is just seeing other people empowered, just watching other, like in my day job now, um, I work for Clean Break Theatre Company, um, and it's a company that works with women affected by uh, criminal justice, mental health and addiction. And so we work in prisons and in the community and just seeing people that you know that have had an horrendous journey and seeing them sometimes come through the door and they can't even lift their eyes off the floor and seeing them after a 12 week process stand up in front of an audience and perform something. It's just outstanding. 
you couldn't no, no money could give me the same enjoyment as as watching that so I think I've been very lucky to have been able to find a career that I really enjoy We'll be back with Lorraine Marr in just a moment. But first, it's time for The Plastic Pedestal, that section of the podcast where I ask one of my interviewees to raise up a member of the diaspora of personal, cultural or political significance to them. This week, Geraldine Judge, a.k.a. Geraldine Maloney Judge, raises up not one, but two inspirational figures. One famous, one personal. But she'll explain. Um... For some reason, this is this is a very famous person who springs to mind, and I absolutely love her, and I I, I want to marry her, even though I'm not gay, but I, I'd love to marry her anyway. Kathy Burke, I, I absolutely I think she is, and I when watching documentary, and then again she's people look at me and go, I think I'm Cockney white, but oh no, I'm Irish, you know. What I mean, she I don't know, she's just the epitome of 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 someone who's like. And I, because I think you know, dad was Irish. I know, I'm not sure if her mum was Irish well, but I know her mum died when she was quite young, but her dad was Irish. And she, she does, does a really good impersonation of her dad when he, when she used to take messages on the phone and would never write anything down. <laughs> and all the mates would go, I rang you earlier on, left a message with your dad. And you know, he never told me. Um, but, you know, I just, I just, I just, I love her. Um, I mean, there's, there's a lot of you know, my family, obviously, there's loads. I mean, there's, there's, I've got a really good friend here in, in Liverpool, Kira O'Neill. She's from Lurgan. And we, we, we're actually getting together uh, again, pandemic <laughs> prevailing. Um, we, we actually got, we, we had this idea, we've got together and we're going to, we're going to do a piece about being, Liverpool Irish women and again the generation like Kira's in her 20s and she's from Lurgan and I'm in my 50s and I'm from Dublin and our, our different lived experiences of, of being a, a Liverpool Irish female and how over the years how we've been perceived and treated in that way and we, we've got these stories and ideas about doing a, a, a theatrical piece and presenting it possibly maybe next year or somewhere along the way we were kind of but I don't know just the way things are going at the moment with work and stuff like that and pandemic so um Kira O'Neill there you go she's my she's my plastic pedestal lady <laughs> it's weird kind of like going the full circle in terms of like really discovering how how Irish you really are and how kind of um People again, kind of people's perception of you and people's understanding of you, and like obviously, again, Kira's experiences, you know, coming from the north of Ireland is very different, and her background and growing up, and 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 you know how people see her and they think she's a terrorist because of her accent, you know, what I mean? um, you know. So just just and again, it's it's like our kind of empathy for each other in terms of like when people say. You know, not wanting, you know, not wanting to. It's not that you're an IRA sympathizer, but you have to kind of go. Well, you've got to look at the situation, and you need to understand why that situation is there. Why did these things happen? Why, why is that happening? You've got to go back into your history. You've got to go back. You've got to go back. And you know, it's, it's, it's. You know, you're automatically again people's perception of you. You, you open your mouth, the words come out. They hear 
X, Y, and Z, what they perceive. And they don't get to know the person behind the accent or get to know your history, get to know your culture, get to know your background, get to know what makes you who you are. Do you know what I mean? So I think we've got a really good kind of empathy and understanding of each other and, and like we've done a couple of plays with each other and we just like we were we were doing this play about um again kind of like old Liverpool Liverpool Irish type of thing and and the guy that wrote the play was he used to go to see the marches in Liverpool we, we were just going to see the marches and it was all great fun and it was all great crack and all the communities were great in the, in Liverpool in the 30s and 40s and 50s in the North End oh there was no sectarianism like me and Keir were like that oh for god's sake you know what I mean no there was a very different thing going on to what you were he was painting a very sanitized version of growing up in north end liverpool in the 30s and 40s and 50s and you know everyone left the door open which probably did happen but you know there, there was you know there was no non you know it was almost like all that um sectarianism never happened not in our community it did <laughs> it was almost like, like there was no domestic violence ah no we were a great community there was none of that going on it was me and Kira like that jesus christ do you know what I mean? So we kind of clicked and bonded in that way. So we we've and we we provided quite a lot of support over each other over the years, like a few years, three years I've known her, and uh, I feel like I've known her for years. So it's she's she's just she's a lovely go-to person as well. You know, she's she understands if I'm feeling a bit down or a bit stressed or a bit homesick, and you know, we get each other in that way. So she's just she's my she's on my pedestal. There you go, Kira O'Neill, love you. Geraldine Judge there, and if you want to hear more of what Geraldine has to say, and why wouldn't you, then why not listen to her, or indeed any of our other interviewees, simply by going to the episodes page at www.plasticpodcasts.com, also available on Spotify, Amazon and Apple Podcasts. And if you want to keep up with the latest from TPP, as well as the bloggiest of blog posts from yours truly with each new episode, why not subscribe? Just insert your email address at the foot of the homepage at www.plasticpodcasts.com and with one confirmatory click, the plastic loot of the world will be yours. Now back to Lorraine Marr. And in this section, we talk about the growth of I Am Irish, an idea that in many ways was a lifetime in the making. I Am Irish is a real heart project of mine. I think over the years, kind of growing up, as I mentioned, there's a direct provision centre in our town. And I remember years ago going home, like there was a moment when, when I'd go home, anyone that was around that was, you know, in brown skin, people would say, oh, Lorraine must know them. And I'm just like, how, how off is that? Um, but, the, you know, the, the, the face of Ireland, now I, I have to be really clear that there's black people in their thousands that have lived in Ireland for forever. This is not, it's not new. And I feel like I need to be really clear about that. It's not new. But we <clears throat> often, you know, in Ireland, there's so many different small towns and things that, and going back years ago, transport wasn't, it's not the way it is in, in London. Um, and people didn't, it, you know, going back years ago, people didn't always travel. I actually met far more um, brown-skinned Irish people in when I came to London. I was like, oh my God, there's loads of us. And um, over the years, 
I remember friends of mine kind of saying, you know, you'd be really well placed to go home and do some integration work because I often thought, and I still feel the same way, like we see in in small towns, um, there's often an outcry when they see um, uh, groups of refugees that are brought into into towns. And I often wonder why the government chooses often small towns where there is already a real stretch on the economics of the town where there's no employment, where there's shortage of houses, where there's, you know, where the towns are already struggling. And then often what happens is they, that they dump a whole community of people, often that they don't even speak the language. And then, you know, there's no real work done where to even introduce the people that were living there before and those that might be new to the town. There's, there's no real way. So, so often what happens is they they end up living in isolation and I can't help but thinking how awful that must be for people that have already gone through something horrendous to go to a new country to be in a new space and feeling like that that they're not being accepted now in our town on the whole um there there is an acceptance but I still think not for me anyway I don't I don't feel like it's full integration in the way that I would like to see integration and I think that that often is the case in in small towns and so so friends of mine were like you know shouldn't you be doing something there shouldn't you be doing something to help it and in the earlier days I was thinking like this is massive do I really want to put myself in that position and again feeling like I didn't want to be the person that's been called names or the person I didn't want to put myself through that um but as the years were going by I was feeling like I remember going home with my kids actually on my mother's funeral I remember crossing the road with my sons and someone shouting the n-word at them out through the car window and 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 I remember saying to my you know my sons who are young adults like just ignore it ignore it and I was like why should we keep having to ignore this like this is my my life that we're having to go through this over and over and over and the thing is Doug like uh, and I just want to be really clear that I have a lot of incredible cousins but I have a particular first cousin that at a time told his children not to play with my children because of the color of their skin this is my first cousin so if we're experiencing this in our family life what hope is there kind of externally to that and so I I lost um, one of my children in 2014 to cancer and um he loved Ireland a lot. He's, you know, he spent a lot of time wearing his, his Ireland kit. Um, a lot of the time he was really, always really proud of his connection to Ireland. And on his, on his grave, we've got his photo and there's an, you know, there's an Irish flag as well as, you know, his dad, St. Lucian. So there was, those flags were there. And there's a lady that used to come every Sunday and she'd always say, why has he got that? I mean, in, in hindsight, when I look back, I actually think that that maybe the lady had dementia because she we had the same conversation like consistently all these Sundays. And it was, it was his birthday, 2016. And I remember kind of feeling like I'm, I just can't do this with you today. I just can't do this with you today. And somebody, one of his friends actually had been to Ireland and came back and they had a newspaper. And he was like, I hear like, look at that. That'll put a smile on your face. And it was saying that the mayor of Venice was going to Muhammad Ali's funeral. Sure, he's one of our own. And it did put a smile on my face because I was like, okay, that's what it takes. That's what it takes. Like when you're the heavyweight champion, people want to own you. And, I, and it was in that kind of moment of feeling like 
a bit fraught about why this lady was questioning yet again why why my son you know what why he was able to to um have the irish flag beside him i, I hadn't seen the newspaper before and i remember the next day kind of looking online for the newspaper and reading a headline that said two black south african students were refused entry to a bar in dublin um and i remember the contrast of that and and knowing, like, I don't know how true that is, but I do know, Doug, that it is true that there are people that my sons have experienced turning up to clubs and them taking one look at them, looking at their face and not letting them in. So I know that this 100% happens and that, you know, whether it happened in that club, I don't know, but it does happen. Um, and, you know, people being turned away based on the colour of their skin is very, very real. And those things were really quite annoying me. And I remember at the time, the Association of Mixed Race Irish was just in the early days of formation. And we were at a meeting at, at the Irish Centre. Um, and, you know, just thinking about the, the, the formation of um, the association. And there was an exhibition on at the time of Irish creatives. And actually, because I can be a bit mischievous at times though, and I remember saying to, to Gary, I think I know that woman. I mean, I obviously knew who they were. Like, was, you know, there's people like James Joyce and that on the wall. I knew who they were. And I was like, I think I know that woman. I think I might have seen her before. And I remember him being really diplomatic about, you know, saying who this, this person was. And I was like, well, why isn't there anyone like me on your wall? And 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 he was like, you know, I think that you're, you're asking a fair enough question. And I was like, well, I'm putting my picture, I'm putting my picture on your wall. I'm putting my picture on your wall. And, and he was really receptive to that. And I have to say that the London Irish Centre has been incredibly supportive of the I Am Irish journey since then. Um, and so that same day, I went to a friend of mine who's a photographer, Tracy Anderson. I was like, Tracy, grab your camera. We're gonna, we're, we're, we're gonna take some photos. Um, and the idea of the exhibition at the time I really just wanted to put the faces of Irish people of colour on the walls. I don't even really like that terminology of colour, like we're all of colour. There's, there's not a person that exists that is not of colour. But I wanted to put those that identified as being of Irish and Afro-Caribbean or Afro-Asian descent on the walls. And that was June. I remember even people saying to me, oh, you know, that's a really good project. You'd be able to get funding for that. I was like, I haven't got time for that. I just want to do this project. And we began collecting the stories because for me, you know, I'm, I've always been really interested in history. And, and so, uh, you know, we, it was an oral history project that we documented. But for the exhibition itself, we just wanted to show the faces and the family crests of the individuals. And the narrative of that is these people are Ireland's sons and daughters. And it was as simple as that. I didn't want to give no explanation as to how, why, if, you know, what the ifs, buts, and maybes were. And I remember even at that time thinking, after I had made this declaration, like, and then I remember thinking, where am I going to find all these people? Where am I going to find them? And I realized, you know, really quickly that actually these are all people that I know. They're all people that are around. And they were just, you know, because the, because the, the, as a community, there were people that I already, that I knew or, or had a connection to. And 
if I'm really honest, when I did it, I, it was like a bit of a two fingers. Like it was a bit like it's about time that we're seen because I remember going into these, you know, it brought me back to all the times going into Irish spaces and people saying, what are you doing here? Or looking at you like you don't belong here. I really just wanted to make a stamp that said this is a space that we belong. We belong in this space and no one should be questioning us. We, we are Ireland's sons and daughters. These are people that are all born in Ireland to, with Irish ancestry, not, you know, because we, we also have been hearing a lot about the new Irish, and I'm saying that in inverted commas, because it was all the new, the new, and I was like, flip's sake, I'd like to think that I'm quite young, but I'm now kind of going into the, the next, anyway, I won't tell you about the amount of decades, but we're not new, we're not new, when we look, you know, there's, there's people that are in the exhibition that are in their 80s, we're, we're not new, We've been around for a really long time, and it's almost like that we've been whitewashed out of some out of history in some way. We're just not seen in in that kind of way. And so, even now, when we look at um, lots of the services, like we know that the Irish government are, you know, there's lots of changes that they're making to try and ensure that we're becoming a bit more equitable in the in language use and in the things that we're doing. But but still, there is there there's always this thought of like the new Irish and wanting to get that opinion but actually we've always existed and in lots of ways have a far more in-depth understanding of what some of the challenges might be um, because we've been in those households like we've been in the households where we're hearing it from all kinds of sides and having a, a, a rounded understanding of what their experience is. You're listening to The Plastic Podcasts. Email us at theplasticpodcasts at gmail.com. In three short years, I Am Irish had gone from hashtag and photography exhibition to support network, training specialists and event producers with their own Irish Roots Festival. But then came COVID. We knew that what we were offering at that stage probably wasn't the thing that was needed straight away. And, you know, for lots, because all of our team were... Um, volunteering for I Am Irish, like 100% volunteering. And so there was lots of people who felt like that they're, they were needed in, in other places. And we decided that we wouldn't apply for funding because we knew that funding needed to go to frontline organisations who, who had, you know, a real strong, um, strong experience of being able to deliver work in that way. And then a few months in, there was the murder of George Floyd and that threw everything on its head. And we realized really quickly that we were needed far more than we, than we could have ever imagined. Um, and we knew that, that our community was really affected by what was happening. And again, it became really clear that there were so many nuances with who we were as a community of people who were biracial. Um, because, you know, at that stage, like most, and, and I'm speaking really generically here, and I know that I'm not talking for everybody, but there's a, a vast majority of people who are biracial who identify as black because that's how society identifies us. So the experience in the world is that. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And people are treated in particular ways in the world because, you know, based on that, on tone, tone alone. Um, and so we, we then kind of came back into work and so we've been working a lot since then and so 
it meant that we've we've now pulled together a really strong board and we've got four areas of work that we're focusing on. Last year, we had our first ever uh, mixed race Irish day and we know mixed race is terminology we don't even want to be using, but we used it because it was a global celebration and we knew that it was terminology that was understood across the world. So, um, and it was phenomenal because we had a four day festival with 33 events and a virtual festival um, where nobody got paid. Everybody that contributed did it voluntarily. And we just knew that it was really needed. And it was seen in 32 different countries by 140,000 people. Um, so we knew that, you know, that this is something that we want to do. So we now when we started thinking about the Irish Roots Festival, it was a festival that we wanted to have in person. But obviously, um, COVID meant that that's something that we couldn't do. So we do plan to um, do that in Ireland every second year with activity that will happen across the world. Because, you know, we had organisations in the States and London and in Ireland that were involved in that festival. So that will go from strength to strength. We'll continue to have hashtag I'm Irish. I'm really excited to say, Doug, that um, on the 16th of October, we have a really special event, Elevate. That is... Um, a spoken word event. We're bringing two artists um, from Ireland with two artists from London and we're going to have a really lovely outdoor spoken word event and um, we're going to project the I Am Irish exhibition on the building of the London Irish Centre. So we're really excited about that. So for anyone that's around in London, come down and um, just celebrate with us. It's the first, it's the first in-person event that we've been able to have in, in 18 months. Um, we've got a whole series of online workshops that we're going to be delivering throughout October um, in celebration of Black History Month. But again, I must be really clear, we're in this skin 365 days. And so we're celebrating our history 365 days. But throughout October, it's kind of a, it's a, a celebration. Um, and so we will be we'll be doing lots of different workshops so anyone can can have a look on our uh, website all of that will be you'll we'll find all of that there um and the exhibition is going to chicago this has gone in five years from being a, a an, ex, an exhibition with with faces on the wall and then how many how many how many pictures was it it was so originally there was 22 photos um with 25 people in the 22 photos but it's expanded like i mentioned before i'm really into localization so what's been really exciting about this project is everywhere that it's gone we've had a local offer and we've worked with local photographers to add images to the project and so as an example of that when we took the project to dublin it was in access in ballymun and we did um, a, a tour of schools, primary, secondary, and universities. And um, we invited people to, to create their own portraits, to draw their own portraits and bring it and put that into um, the building. And we did a whole series of creative workshops. Um, when it went to New York, again, there was, you know, there was um, uh, like an event there. When it was in Galway, we did poetry with young people there that talked about their experience of Irishness. So, like everywhere it's gone, it's been in the London Mayor's office. Um, yeah, it, it's it's had quite a journey. It's had quite a journey. Um, and really excited about it being back at the London Irish Centre. Even in you know, it's in a, in a very different way. Um, and that again is because we you know we're, we're very mindful that COVID still exists and wanting to be careful. And so that's why we're having an outdoor event. Does it make your head spin? 
Yes. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. I mean, the, the thing is that I genuinely see the impact of this work. I've seen it grow over, over the years. And I see, like, we see, um, like, Leon and, and Bonnie and them with Black and Irish in Ireland. And there's so many different organisations now that have spun up in Ireland. And, you know, I remember, like, Leon was saying, like, because I was saying, like, I think now I can hand it over. And they were like, no, you, you can't, because there's still so much work to be done. There is still... Um, there is still so much need um, and things are changing in Ireland. They certainly are. But the work that we're now focusing on here in the UK is so like because our work spans second, third, fourth generation people who are Irish. Because what we've seen over the years is those that live in the UK um, that might identify as biracial, they'll, they'll be like, my mum is Irish. They never say like this. This is this is part of my heritage. It's, so, it's someone else's, and that again is often because of how people are perceived. So we're doing a lot of work now to really kind of look at the wider diaspora and to to really you know get people excited about their heritage and have an understanding of their heritage. That and I'm also we've started doing some research because the other thing that we've seen is obviously that there has there there are. Um, when we look at the demographic of Ireland, it is very different to what it might have looked like years ago. I'm really interested in the conversation about emigrant and migrant and when does someone become one of the others and when are, when are, uh, the kind of media going to stop talking about people in particular ways. But equally, so what's happened is, is like we see lots of young people who might be Afro-Irish that leave Ireland and come to England, but again, have that same experience that those Irish organisations that I might have gone to years ago, they still get the same experience of that, oh, this might not really be the place for me. So they actually stop identifying as Afro-Irish and then they're just like Afro in Britain or, you know, the Afro-Caribbean that live in, in the UK. And so I feel like there's something lost in that because we're talking about people who have a real rich Irish heritage. Um, and we need to hold on to that because they, there's so much that is added to the fabric of Ireland in um, you know having all its uh, glorious diaspora. You mentioned something earlier, and it was that it took you a, a long time to to redevelop your connection with Ireland and Irishness. Did that happen over a period of time, or was there was there a moment when you go, so I go, yeah, I'm comfortable with this now? I think it was um, like when my son was unwell; he wanted to be in Ireland a lot of the time. And and I also watched, you know, I think I saw my town in a new in a new light and I just saw different things that people were doing in the town just to support other people, not not necessarily my son, but just to support other people. And and actually, you know, one of the the, the um, things that stayed with me, um, the the childhood image that I used as a kind of, you know, it, it's probably still, I think, on the socials. Um, a friend of mine from school sent it to me. She found it in the Heritage Centre of all places. But I'd never seen the image. And looking at that picture, I was looking at a picture, you know, almost like outside of myself thinking, this is a beautiful child. If only this child had realised that they were so amazing. They could, I mean, yeah, uh, you know, I acknowledge that I have done some incredible things in my work in life and in my family life. Um, but I think kind of uh, going home, in later years and um, seeing a different view of Ireland. Now, I have to say that that actually 
probably happened more in Dublin than it did at home. That in Dublin, there was so many different people. I was having a different experience being in Ireland. I wasn't that obvious anymore in Ireland. I wasn't that, you know, people didn't point me out in that kind of way. I could just be without there being kind of anything else. And I think that that, I really enjoyed that. And also, you know, having lots of friends in, lots of friends is, 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 um, is that's been overdramatic and saying lots of friends in Ireland who speak Gaelic. But I have a, a, a group of friends in Ireland that speak Gaelic. And when, whenever I go to Dublin, they start speaking Gaelic to me. And I realise I really like it. I really like having that part of my heritage now. It's something that I don't very often speak publicly because I'm not very good at it. Because, and that was to do with being excluded from my Irish class in school because my teacher felt like I didn't need it. Um, so she said I, could, I didn't have to do it. But I really wish that somebody had made me do it because I, I think it's so, you know, it's such an important thing. It's such, it's a rich language. And, and I really enjoy that. And I think that that, and, and people, people with brown skin speaking to me in Gaelic and feeling like, you know, this is the island that I feel like I really can be part of. And that's really what, what helped me to get more connected with it. Last two questions. The first of all is like, um, what do you do to relax? What do <laughs> After all this, what the heck do you do to relax? I spend time with my grandchildren. I mean, we, we, yeah, I, I don't think, to be honest with you, like when people, people have said to me before, what's your hobby? And I think work is my hobby. Work is my hobby. That's what I do to relax. I do. It makes me feel better to, that for me, I, I think that there's, there's far more joy in giving than there is in receiving. And I, I always feel overjoyed when, when, you know, when I can do something that, that makes somebody else's life that little bit better or a little bit easier my final question and it's the one i ask um, pretty much all my uh, my interviewees which is what does being a member of the irish diaspora mean for you it, it's it's always been the one thing that i've that i've never had a question about like that's always it's just been a given it's the one thing that i have in my life that has is is interchangeable even my skin tones have changed over the years my hair texture has changed over the years I found my bleeding dad over the years but the one thing that's never changed about me is being Irish you've been listening to the plastic podcasts with me Doug Devaney and my guest Lorraine Marr the plastic pedestal was provided by Geraldine Judge and music by Jack Devaney Find us at www.plasticpodcasts.com, follow us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram, or email us at theplasticpodcasts at gmail.com. The Plastic Podcasts is a production of The Plastic Projects.